I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Everyone who's done some sort of home renovation knows that once you start peeling back the walls, you find things you never would have expected. But the LaJoy family found something totally out in left field when they started peeling back the walls of their home in Johnson County, Kansas in 1987. But before we find out what was found, we need the backstory of how it arrived, and that starts with Graham Rogers. Well, we're about to learn about somebody, I guess, that, that, that that's new to the world of our podcast, Diane, and that's a guy named Graham Rogers. Who the heck is that? Great name, right? It is a great name, yes. <laughs> Would you guess he's Native American from that name? Well, I, I started to read it, and I, and I didn't realize that Graham Rogers was a Native American, but not just a, a Native American, a pretty important Native American in this yeah. whole story. No, I know. We don't really, you know, I, I will say, you know, to preface this, that not that I am, um, my specialty is not Native American history. It's so complicated and it's very hard to research, but I couldn't resist telling this story when I discovered that there was something hiding underneath a farmhouse that's sitting in the middle of Johnson County. Who knew? Well, what, what's really interesting about this whole thing is that is that we have Graham Rogers, who all of a sudden becomes the chief of the, of the Shawnee Native Americans, the Shawnee Indians at the time, and somehow ends up here in the middle of Kansas ends up in Oklahoma, but like his house is still like legitimately being lived in today, which we'll get to in a second. How does Graham Rogers end up as the chief of the Shawnee Indians? It's kind of an interesting backstory. And it takes us to, of course, the really sad history of the relocation of Native American tribes in general. So um, Johnson County was originally the home of the Kansas tribes in the Osage, right? But then in, in 1830, the government actually removed the Shawnee from lands in Ohio and in Missouri. And of course, that's going to delay white settlement in Kansas territory, because now we've just allocated it to the Native Americans. Like, we're, we need the land in Ohio where it's more expensive, and even Missouri at this point. So we need you to move. And that's what happened. And so um, essentially, you know, we have to remember that following the Native American tribes was definitely going to be a bunch of um, missions too, missionaries. And that gets into, of course, Johnson County's history as well. And, you know, you have to wonder how much trust they had in the United States government too. And the trust that they had in these treaties that they made. So the Shawnee, which is, I mean, obviously a namesake of a lot of things in Johnson County, um, originally lived in Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina. And then one group, a really interesting group, which is, I love the backstory on this, in 1793-ish, okay, um, gets a a little land grant from Spain. Like, they're done. So they're going to split from, like, the other Shawnee tribes. And they settle near Cape Girardeau 
right? Mm. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. And the rest moved to Ohio in 1817. So this Missouri settlement, there was about eight Shawnee settlements in the state of Missouri between, and of course, it was even territory at this point, between 1793 and 1825. And one of them, the one that we're going to talk about is Rogerstown. And they were moved, you know, they were, I'm not going to say they're nomadic. They probably kept getting kicked off the land, to be honest with you. They were moved several times, but they end up, I don't know if you know where Bridgeton is outside of St. Louis. At one mm-hmm. point, they're in Bridgeton. Um, I used to, my, when I was a wine rep, that's where our office was, was in Bridgeton. Um, and then they uh, end up settling on the Merrimack River. Of course, that makes sense. And to be clear, I think that we have a really... Um, a misrepresentation or a, a misconstrued notion, probably from the not so PC days. Uh, did you ever make the little Native American hat when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. You know, the little the little band. Okay, we always think like Native American. I'm thinking like that's what this is like. These guys were really domesticated, so they're going to have a domesticated life and a domesticated tribe. So they had log homes, interracial schools, uh, livestock. They were trading with the Delaware. They were hunting in the winter and, uh, you know, uh, farming in the summer. So they were a lot more domesticated than other tribes. And so that means they, you know, they intermingled, if you will, too. So that's what happens to this guy. So, and it's a really weird story. And I've heard it and looked at it. And I mean, I'm telling you, it's got to be true <laughs> because I'm looking at these. I mean, we're talking like way ancestors from all over the place, they all have been told the same story. And that gives some credence to the story. So essentially, around 1778, the chief of this tribe, the Blackfish, okay, chief Blackfish, they're the fish band of the tribe. He apparently loses his son, his son was killed, I don't know how, but he, you know, so he's looking for a replacement. It's like he lost his cell phone. (laughs) Yeah, right. It sounds like it. And I read that in in your article and and kind of doing some background on this and like, like he he needed a son. So he just basically went out there and found a guy and said, you're going to be my son. Yeah. Found a white kid, found a white kid and supposedly kidnapped him from his house and decided, yep, you're my kid now and raised him. And the kid, and this would have been the, essentially the descendant of the Rogers clan. And so he grew up with the Shawnee. He relocated west of the Mississippi River prior to 1794. So this is going to be Rogers Town. Mm -hmm. Chief Blackfish, whether he had another son or not, chose Lewis, essentially Rogers, to um, take over. And Native American tribes at the time, really, it was ancestral is how they decided who was going to lead them. It was not like by, you know, let's vote or anything like that. And so Lewis ends up, you know, kind of being groomed for this role. And what's interesting is he, I I mean, I think Lewis knew, this is Lewis Rogers. He knew he was um, kidnapped, I'm assuming. I mean, maybe he forgot. I don't know. But his, it it must have been a little awkward when his sister, who would have not been blood related, he decided he wanted to marry her. (laughs) Sister's like, uh, this is my brother. And she apparently didn't realize that he had been kidnapped. Long story short, she, they, he ends up marrying his... They get married. They get married. Hey, hey congratulations. That's, that's got to be a little weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think I would think I a little think weird. But, be, weird. <laughs> but because of that, then they have a kid, and now all of a sudden the heir to the, to the, to, to the chief of, of the Shawnee is this, this kid, Graham Rogers, and you're looking at him going, wait a second here. Well, there, there's got to be something that got lost in, in history. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, I've read this story through Native American tribes. I've read this story through the ancestors of the guy who was kidnapped, Lewis Rogers, and the story they have, which is interesting too. So Lewis marries and they have like five kids. Mm-hmm. One of them is Graham and he's born around 1818. And um, around this time, his brother, his blood brother, 
I don't know how he found him. How do you find anybody back then? I mean, it's not like the Native Americans were reading the newspaper. I don't know how they found him, but they found Lewis. And he's like, mom really wants to see you, whatever. So Lewis goes back to Virginia where he was kidnapped. He goes back to Virginia and, and sees his mom for the first time ever. He's a grown man, has a family, you know, I mean, he's dressed like a Native American at this point, still can speak English, of course. And uh, mom tries to convince him to, to desert his family and stay. And Lewis is like, I can't do that. I have a sons. I have a family I'm going to raise. So he left in the middle of the night and never, never turned back. Yeah, never came back, which, which I probably would do as well. I mean, you know, you were kidnapped how many years prior? You're not with this family anymore. You're part of a, a new life, which has become your life. Now, I would have to say these folks that I haven't seen in 30 years, however long it's been. Sorry, nice knowing you, but I'm going back out to Kansas. Right. Well, and this one, he's in Missouri. Remember, they're on the Merrimack River. And, and so he ends up going to Rogerstown and goes back and never looks back, um, which, of course, leaves this these legendary stories of, mm -hmm. of both. You can imagine the white family is just like, what? So that story definitely got passed down. Um, at the same time, we have these guys who are trying to cash in. I hate to say it, but these mission missionary men, a lot of them were trying to cash in on the Native American lands, you know, trying to work out deals with them so they could settle on the land. And essentially, you know, help indoctrinate the Native Americans, if you will. One of them, of course, was Thomas Johnson, the namesake of Johnson County. And he is going to be the one who runs the Shawnee India Mission. He actually um, was even before he settled into uh, Kansas territory. He met with Rogerstown Shawnees and was like, hey, what do you think? Hey, you know, and they're like, sure, you should set up a mission. So essentially... They're one of the first bands that comes, uh, the Shawnee. Um, they relocate into uh, Kansas territory in 1830. And they come over along with Thomas Johnson. He set up, sets up his first mission in Turner, Kansas. So like near Argentine, you know, by the river. Sure. And, that, you know, they're, he's going to educate the Native Americans. The Quakers come in 1836 and they build a two-story structure. And then followed by Baptists, you get the idea. Well, so then the bands of Shawnees, it, it's about 2,200 people. It's not that many. Think about that. It's really not that many. They're given, I want to make sure you and all relocated into the area by 1834, and they're given 1.6 million acres. That's a lot of land for 2,200 people, isn't it? It sure is. But I mean, at this point, they don't think that anything else is going to really happen. You know, they're not thinking ahead. You right. Know, government wasn't thinking ahead. So uh, Thomas Johnson is able to secure uh, his mission. He relocates three miles uh, from Westport on the Santa Fe Trail, which, of course, is uh, today's 53rd and Mission Road. Um, three buildings are standing. So, so we have all these guys that are moving in, including uh, ch these chiefs from other tribes. And including so we have Fish Band. That's the chief blackfish. That's going to be Graham Rogers uh, people, if you will. Um, they come with a hundred people it, with, with Graham Rogers and, and they arrived the earliest 1828. And then Frederick Shoto, he takes another band from the, um, another area of the, uh, I think it was from the Missouri area. Frederick Shoto is the brother of Francois Shoto, um, who is of course, one of the founders of Kansas city, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other bands arrived in Ohio led by Tecumseh's younger brother, the prophet, and he wasn't all right in the head. He came in 1833 and also the future chief, Charles Blue Jacket. So you have all of these guys coming in. Now you got to remember, they all have their own chiefs. So mm -hmm. we're probably going to have some issues, but honestly, it became pretty friendly. Um, you know, they're like reuniting. They, I mean, they're all kind of related, you know, they're all related. Right, sure. What up? Um, so in any case, um, 
so Thomas Johnson is going to entrust, you know, especially half breeds. And I hate to say it that way, but you know, the, you know, he was a Graham Rogers was a half breed. Um, so he was half white, half uh, Native American. And so he was, he's going to build his buildings in this new mission spot, which I think there were total over 20 buildings originally. One of the first buildings is the West building built in 1839. He, he gets his own kiln on property so they can fire their own brick. Mm-hmm. Um, they build that for the teachers quarters in the classrooms and they build the East building, which is 1840 classrooms, a chapel. And I think that's where the little bo- the boys quarters were. Um, and then in 18, uh, by, by early 1840s, they have 16 buildings and it's a massive, massive operation. His whole goal is to charge native Americans to send their kids to the mission basically. And it employed by Thomas Johnson is none other than Graham Rogers. And he is considered to be one of the men that built the buildings. So he probably learned something about construction, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, building these, these, these pretty sturdy structures and, and all of this. And so he ends up um, building his own two-story dog trot log cabin. And a dog trot log cabin, have you ever, have you seen him now? That you, do you see the picture of one? Yeah, of sure. Yeah. But I mean, people listening aren't going to, you know, maybe if they go back and check out the article, you know, <laughs> see, see what, what, what you're talking it's about. Like. Describe this cabin, you know? Well, yeah, it's a very interesting cabin. So it's going to be a two story is really unique. Usually it's one story. So uh-huh. essentially, uh, it would be usually you had your kitchen quarters on one side and then you had your living quarters on the other side and it was joined together. The building would have been joined together with a roof, if you will. And then there'd be a breezeway in between that would be the dog trot. And that was actually for breeze for circulation and also for, sa- for safety. Think about it because if your kitchen catches on fire, it's not you don't want it. the whole house to go up. Yeah. You don't want all, the whole house to go up in flames. So this is a two story dog trot and which is very interesting because that, those are not as common. So it, he builds this beautiful two story. It was very impressive. Log cabin. I and, bet at the time this thing probably oh, was the toast of the town, you know? It was 100%. Oh, I mean, because most Native Americans, I mean, not to say that they were roughing it, but, you know, get the teepee out of your head. These are domesticated Native Americans, mm-hmm. but they didn't necessarily have the funds, right, to build something like this. But he had developed relationships with the rich white folk. So essentially, he was able to, you know, ask, get a lot of money down to it. So he ends up with several, uh, five, children, or I should say five people living in this structure. And he gets married a little bit later in his life. I mean, it really, I mean, for, you know, uh, the time period, he ends up getting uh, married to a lady named Anna Carpenter, who's also a half breed. She was born in 1830. And they get married in 1850 at the Shawnee Indian Mission, Thomas Johnson. So she moves in with a log cabin. And then there's kind of a it's an interesting, I, I think I always thought that chiefs and it's different with each tribe, but I always thought that chiefs just like, were chief until they died and <laughs> yeah, right. right. Well, that was originally probably the case with that, the succession through sons, mm-hmm. but blue jacket wanted to have the chief of the Shawnee be passed on by birth. So sons, Rogers said, we should, we should all vote. We're all coming from different areas. We should all vote. It should be a, you know, a democratic vote. Right. Rogers won. And so he was actually, uh, it was the first time that it, the Shawnee were selected the best man for the job, not by birth. And in 1851, Graham Rogers is elected second chief. So like VP. Yeah. <laughs> He's like VP 
Um, and I, so I want to go back to something that, yeah. that, that I kind of find fascinating before we continue sure. on. And, and maybe this is oversimplification of it, Diane, but it sure seems like the Shawnee were a lot more tolerable and accepting of us than we were of them back at the time. It seems like the Shawnee welcomed in, in the white man while the, the white man was trying to push the, the Shawnee tribe further and further west and further and further south every chance they got. Why was that? Uh, part of it was the domestication prior to. So you have the idea that they were already adopting into Christianity. They were already had these relationships with, with missions. They were already educating their kids, teaching their kids English. So it was easier to, for them to accept these, these people than it was mm -hmm. the Osage. The Osage were like not playing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you hear the stories about the Osage and how, how awful, awful the white men were to the Osage Indian tribes back in the day. And even going down to Oklahoma and, and, and seeing what they have, you know, kind of, uh, you know, where the pioneer woman is and, and, and yeah. visiting her town in, in Paul Huska and seeing the Osage Indian tribe and just how, how awful, you know, they were treated back in the day by the white man moving in and taking their land. And, and uh, taking their culture. Too. Yeah. And I think that it's sad that it, we live in a society, and I mean, I'm without getting political, but we live in a society that thinks that we have to have other people adapt to us. And, you know, uh, it, we didn't begin that, or, or we should have never begun that way. Mm -hmm. um, and with Native American tribes, they were, I mean, we, they wouldn't give them a, a, a good land grant if they didn't trust that they were going to do what they said, which part of it was to assimilate. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're not going to do that, which is why the Osage got pushed out so quickly. I mean, they were like not playing. And other tribes, Delaware were another one that were more willing to, uh, and the Delaware were closely related to the Shawnee tribe. So they got along well. And so you don't want to like pair up with a tribe and have Native American lands next to tribes that don't get along. So all of that played in. And, and the people that were making the decisions were the white men who were also representing the chiefs. So it wasn't like there wasn't white men helping make this decision. And Thomas Johnson had his nose all in this too. Of course he did because sure. it directly affected his, you know, government land, if you will, too. Right. And, I mean, it doesn't take all of a sudden they realize Grim Rogers settled on and, and it, there was no acclimation of land. It was like, here's your land. It, it's not like, you know, the tribe decided where you were going to live. They kind of just settled where they were going to settle, you know, so families settled ne next to each other and things like that. So there wasn't like platted out pieces of land yet. And Graham Rogers, by the time we get to white people moving in. So Kansas territory opens up for settlement because led by Thomas Johnson, they went to Washington, D.C. with the chiefs and leaders of the tribe, including Graham Rogers, and they negotiated the land they already owned. Think about that. Mm. They negotiated the land they were already given. So it was already like, we're going to take this from you, but we need to figure out what we're going to do. And so the agreement was originally 1.6 billion acres. And this is what, a 30, 20, 20 years later-ish, 25 years later, they whittled it down to 200,000 acres. Wow. 1.6 million to 200,000 acres. And not only that, but now we're moving white folk in. Now we're moving white folk in. And so your family doesn't feel safe. No, nobody's really sure. There's a slavery thing going on on the border. <laughs> like there's all sorts of stuff going on. It's like, hmm, maybe we should move, you know? Yeah. And, and so Graham, the first time, so the 1855, the government said, we have to, if you're going to, if you're going to get your 200 acres, because that's what they were going to give you. <laughs> like, okay. Um, if you're going to get your 200 acres, you have to sign over essentially your rights. Like there's no more claiming of land and all of this. 
So Graham Rogers and his wife and his, he had a daughter at this point are able to get secure 600 acres, 200 acres a kid. Um, and they live in their land originally was from 63rd street to 71st, I-35 to Metcalf Avenue. Okay. That's a big, big trek of land right there. Well, he started with 600, but as the Native Americans started to say, here, I'll buy that land. He's like, I'll buy it from you because they started to leave. They didn't uh-huh. want to stay around. So he went from 600 to 1,000 acres by purchasing himself. Okay. So, and then he also had his neighbor, you know, his, his, his mother-in-law, she lived at Antioch Park, you know, I mean, like these Native Americans were right here. And, and there's a, actually really cool is that her, uh, his wife's mom, so his, his mother-in-law had a painting done of her. She's one of only, I think it's six Shawnee that actually have like artistic drawings of them done in 1830. Wow. And one of them, of course, is the prophet and another was her mom. And she was, a, she was, you know, married to a white man. Um, so, I mean, like the history that just oozes in this area is just unbelievable. And you it think really about is. it now and you're just like, oh my, and this is, this, we're just getting into white people moving in. And it's like, this guy's already had a cabin built. If you can consider this, by the time he's got his 1858 He's been on that land for almost at least 20 years. Right. He might not have started with that dog trot two-story log cabin. I mean, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. So, he, so he, he builds this house, has all this land, and here comes the government again basically telling him, we're taking this away from you. You now have to move to Oklahoma. Yeah, well, he, it was a choice. It was a choice. You got to remember that when he signed, when he was given that land, he had a choice. He could have he could have if he didn't want to conform, if you will, then he wouldn't have been given the land. Uh, so he made a choice. With, but he, here's the thing. In 1859, like, seriously, it could not be the worst time for Kansas territory, right? Right. The civil yeah. rights, border war stuff. Uh, just to the north of him was uh, Charles Blue Jacket. And uh, during this, during the border wars and, and even into the Civil War, um, his neighbor just to the north, Charles Blue Jacket, was that was supposedly an underground uh, a station on the Underground Railroad, uh-huh. and so the bushwhackers were nailing them right and left. And so uh, I know that at least I, I know that Graham Rogers applied to the government to try to be, to reclaim twenty five hundred dollars in property loss and never, never got it. And by the way, his his kids tried to get it and they never got it. So this was getting hostile. And then also, you know, you've got the white people moving in and they're like, hey, look, we don't even have to build a structure. Look at this guy's got. (laughs) So they just basically tried to take it from this guy. (laughs) So, yeah. So essentially he has got three kids by this time and he was elected the actual Shawnee chief in 1859. Right. And he gets it's really cool because a drawing. There's this passerby who was writing in a diary. It's a book now. Um, and he wrote about his experience, you know, talking to Native Americans. And he actually went to Graham Rogers' house and he sketched the dog trot cabin in 1859, which is so cool. And so he, they just decided it's time to move. You got to remember, he's the leader of the pe- of the pack. So who, some people had already moved. And then the rest of them were like, what are we going to do, chief? Right. Like, I think it's time to go. So essentially, in 1865, his farm is valued at $14,000. He's got That's a lot of money back then, I would imagine. A lot of money. A lot of money. I'll talk figures, yeah, about that in a second. He's got three kids. It's time to go. So they're going to move to Oklahoma. The Cherokee Nation had welcomed them and said, Shawnee, you can come down and live with us. And they're like, cool, let's go. And so in 1866, he's elected head chief again. And he decides to sell his property. So July 1868, I believe it is, is the first time that he sells a portion of his land. 
And he sells the two-story log cabin and 520 acres to a guy named Henry Kopik, which we'll talk about later, um, for $18,200, which is equivalent to about 350 grand a day. That's actually a pretty good deal. Yeah. <laughs> for that land. Like, can you imagine? I mean, uh, and then, you know, the white settlement had really moved in. And this Henry Kopik decides to, and this goes into, and we'll go back to Graham in a second, but he, he, he's not going to just leave a dog trot log cabin. He wants something a little bit nicer. So instead of building, um, you know, tearing it down and starting at the foundation, why, why not build around it? Yeah, sure. Build uh, around it. Uh, and that's and, what was hidden for so long. Right. And so Henry Kopik, who will talk about more in our next episode of this builds i guess essentially a house around around a house and in 1987 as we all do with home construction you start peeling one thing back of the wall can you imagine this falls apart that falls apart this is not working that's not working i've never done home construction where i started to peel things back diane and saw another house underneath my walls. That must have been the biggest surprise. Is it yeah. the LaJoy family back in 1987 who yeah. are peeling back the walls and going, oh my God, what do we have here? It's crazy story because, and I love that because it's, yeah, you, you, it's like, where's my insulation? I have logs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and it's actually a cool story. So um, after Graham Rogers left, he died pretty quickly just to kind of sum that up. Um, and it's very sad cause we don't know where he's buried, which we'll talk about that here in a second again too. But, um, so when he dies and Henry Kopik builds what, what is, we'll talk about next time, but it's Oak park farm. Hilarious. That's called mm-hmm. that. And, um, essentially this house is still standing at 6741 Mackey. Please remember it's private property people. Um, so in any case, uh, in eight, in 1987, the Ike and, and Nancy LaJoy are looking for, he was from Atchison, Kansas. And he's like, I really want a house that's, you know, like kind of feels like a farm. And his realtor is like, I think I might have something for you. <laughs> so she takes him into this subdivision. And at the end of a dead end of a street, there's a reason there's a dead end there. Cause it was originally obviously a lot larger. Mm-hmm. Um, is this white frame farmhouse and it looks just i mean if i if i were looking at it i'd go 1880 for sure you know from the looks of it two-story white house whatever so he buys the they buy the house and about a year later there's this amateur historian named jerry winkleman he was a real estate agent he's like he's like practically digging through their trash like he i'm kidding but he he was like just snooping around their property one day and ike's like can i help you (laughs) the guy's like Hey, I have a feeling that your house is a lot older than you think. And he's like, what do you mean? So he starts telling him about Graham Rogers and Ike is a curious cat and his wife as well. And they both love history. And they're like, well, let's see what happens. Where, where should we start? And so they knew that the dog trot would have been in the center of the home, which is where the staircase is today. I was very lucky to of course go and visit and see it for myself. So they look in the, the center construction made sense. So they went up to a top bedroom that they weren't using at that point. And they just started peeling away the wallpaper and peeling away the plaster. And, and what the hell, all of a sudden, it's not just logs. It's like, there's still bark on the logs. If that tells you anything. Yeah. And it was like, Oh, this is way older than we thought. And then when they look into the records, it's like, it's like 1840. And I mean, I've just never heard of anything like this before. So, uh, I asked when I was there, because I love basements. Basements tell you everything you need to know about an old home. 
seriously, not just leaks. They tell mm-hmm. you a lot, especially about additions and basements. So I was like, he goes, you want to see our basement? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I go downstairs. And if you look up in the ceiling, I mean, it is full on like the guy, like grandmothers cut the trees down, left the bark on, stuck them up there. And so how come they didn't notice that there was something like not right about that? Like if I went down to my basement and saw trees down there, I'd be like, what in the <laughs> heck is this? They noticed that part. They did notice that part, but you have to remember you could have. But they just it- assumed it was old and it was just like the charm. Yeah. In, in, well, in, in the frame structure. So you figure, oh, well, maybe they, they, maybe they removed a lot of trees from the area and they use that as the support beams in the house. You just leave it at that. You're not going to think your whole freaking house is one big log cabin when it's like literally a frame house. Yeah. And so that's when they realized that obviously it was a lot older than they thought. And, and I think it goes to say, I, I always say this because I, I could tell a thousand stories in Kansas City about us screwing up and tearing stuff down. I think that part of the reason this got saved is because it because it was so tucked away. And because, it, you know, it, it doesn't blend with the subdivision. At well, all. I was going to say the subdivision I looked at on, on like Google Earth. It's like, you know, split level houses like your typical Johnson County, you know, North Johnson County suburbs and, and, and suburban yeah. street. And then all of a sudden there's just like this gorgeous, like white farmhouse that looks like it just doesn't belong. You know, and, and the thing is, is what doesn't belong are those, those other houses. Those yeah. Houses. Um, yeah, you're right. And I think that uh, I, when I say incredibly lucky and there's, there's a backstory in the 1950s of how the house kind of, I might have say saved, but kind of escaped demo. Um, and and it, you can tell because the street doesn't go all the way through. It kind of ends. There's no cul-de-sac. It just kind of like ends. Mm-hmm. And that's partially because I'm sure eventually they thought they'd plow through and then the other land around it became commercial versus residential. But I think it, 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 it gives me some hope that there are other structures that I still don't know about that you can imagine my shock. I'm like, I know all about this Kansas City's history and what is this? How did I not know about this? Well, partially because it's not on the National Register. It isn't really broadcast out there because it's a private residence mm-hmm. but, and, and, and that could be dangerous. But in the case, it, it fell into the right owner's hands because they yeah. did nothing but try to preserve and, and embrace this incredible history especially for someone who was a chief of the Shawnee and got basically relocated without wanting to relocate and doesn't even have a grave, right? And the other thing that bothers me about this, his wife dies, in, this is Graham Rogers, his wife dies in 1871 and he dies in 1872, left very young children. Is His oldest daughter married but never had kids. His son... Um, died of tuberculosis when he was like 30, didn't have any kids. And his daughter, the last daughter, Rachel, uh, was a Diane. She she was a spinster. She was a teacher and never married. And so the line died out. And I think that always makes me really sad because I think about the legacy of something and the fact that Graham Rogers actually stayed somewhat in the history books, even though he doesn't have that legacy. And yes, we don't know where he's buried. We know where his kids are buried. We don't know where he's buried, but he left behind a structure that's still standing in Johnson, in the heart of Overland Park. And how how amazing is that? It's pretty wild to think that for well over 100 years, a house was inside a house and no one knew it existed. In our next episode, we'll meet two former owners of the home who almost made it disappear. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t 